0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we should talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edmund Davis and joining me this week through the Middle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: Oh, it's going all right, thanks Ed. I am um, recovered from the cold that's Mm. been going around uh, this normal island having an incredibly normal time and even though I spent (laughs) most of the past week uh, asleep I'm glad that uh, the flu seems to have spared me, friends of Mm. mine have had that end of the scale and it's very unpleasant so I'm just uh, blinking born again into this um, into this time how
0: are you yeah i'm doing okay i've had a very very busy week uh at work which has really kind of like consumed a lot of my time and then uh other than that i've just been playing lots of yakuza still because oh. uh, my aim is to complete like all of the main line games in that series by the end of the year and i'm up to six which is the last one with the like main character whose story has been tell- told over all the previous games and that has been a lot of fun those games are incredibly silly. Um, but also incredibly moving and melodramatic in all the right ways. And Yakuza 6 has my favorite, you know, like health bar in all the video games, which is for the mini game where you have to befriend cats.
1: No. Uh,
0: and it just says cat friendship. <laughs> and as you should- become better friends with cats, it fills up. And that's, uh, that's been one of my favorite things. And it always annoys me because you have to kind of like find cats as you're going around doing other things. And if you get into a fight, the cat runs off. And every time it's like, oh, I've got to have to f- beat this fight even harder now because they've ruined my chance to befriend that nice tabby.
1: Oh, my heart! Yeah, can't stop, <laughs> won't stop, especially when cat friendship is at stake.
0: <laughs> so we'll go on to this week's news, and um, there's a fair few things in the like the sort of two weeks or so since we last recorded the uh, big one at least in terms of stuff we've been covering over the last couple of months was that the new contract for iatse was uh, ratified uh, obviously iatse the uh, sort of collection of unions that represent loads of the below the line workers working in film and television they were on the verge of a strike a few weeks ago and then they reached an agreement with the producers guild and the details of that have kind of come out and it seems to be something of a mixed bag i think the overall the contract agreement they've reached is is better than the one that they had but a lot of people seem to think that it's not as good as they could have gotten if they had actually gone on strike and they, they feel maybe some people feel like they gave up leverage by refusing to strike or, or compromising and that result seems to have been reflected in the vote itself because the way i works, work because it's a collection of lots of different unions each union is a f- awarded a certain number of votes it's essentially like an electoral college so like the result in each union um, then gets kind of like passed on. And then, so in this kind of electoral college version, um, the new contract was ratified by like like two-thirds majority. But then if you look at the raw votes, the it actually failed. Like more people voted against it by a smaller number than voted for it. So uh, based on sort of reporting I saw in places like Jacobin about this, there generally seems to be a sense of kind of like, Disappointment in this is like, even though they got something better, maybe they could have got something even more better if the leadership had been willing to go through with the strike.
1: Ah, oh, yes, the electoral college style never fails to work perfectly. Mm. <laughs> it is disappointing. I think we need, and by we, I mean us broadly on the left, in terms of leverage in in labor because it's not just about money. This is the thing that I keep banging on about this. It's about people's lives being at stake. It's, it's mm-hmm. work conditions, which when you look at union history, that's the fundamental thing that unions were created for. And yes, we are exploited horrendously under capitalism, but overall, the, the work that unions have done historically has made work at least safe for people. And mm. taking away that safety and that... oh, I mean, I it's hard to tell what the tactics are in the long game because whether this is a gesture of good faith um, and then a strike can happen further down the line, but how many more people have to die unnecessarily, um, and that this is still the outcome after Helena Hutchins' completely accidental, tragic, avoidable death. Um, it's difficult because I feel like in the UK as well, in the way that work has been shaken up, you know, the great resignation, is it the effects of the pandemic that pandemic that we're still in i hasten to add um but really starting to feel the effects of some sense of consequence as people come back into working face to face hopefully with masks i feel like often the last recourse or like the sort of rallying cry and the line of defense that has been used for the past couple of years is join a union but if this is how the union behaves where do you go then? And I think that's the question that scares me. And I think the question that needs to be asked because there's solidarity and then there's all of you being sold down the river. Mm. Um, And the fact that this is not... Because I I think when unions act on pay, because I obviously still... Um, uh, <laughs> think people should be paid more but I'm also someone who is like let's talk about UBI let's completely rip things to shreds it doesn't have to be this bad we can make a nice new patchwork quilt out of everything we have before and go oh I didn't realise it could look that way look at this beautiful thing we made together but when it I, I just it baffles me that, that they're asking for the most basic rights in terms of safety and a work life balance <laughs> this isn't this isn't about pay at all, and it's so uh, it's pretty harrowing, but I don't know what the i don't think this should be a long game, even if a long game is being played, so it's hard for me not to say um if you hadn't if you hadn't gathered listeners, I am pretty gutted about it mm,
0: yeah, I think that it also as we we've mentioned in the past you know there's a lot of um labor action happening in the u.s at the moment in like in a lot of states and in a lot of different industries and it doesn't contrast great with the success of like the john deere um workers who ended their strike this week and got basically everything they wanted mm. and like by by pretty much every account at least that i've seen it that uh, strike was a resounding success and it achieved like all the aims that they were they were aiming for and yeah, there's a lot of, uh, like, uh, you know, virgin Chad energy <laughs> going on, on between um, IATSE and the John Deere workers over this whole sort of thing. Uh, in other news, it was announced that uh, Martin Scorsese, everyone's favourite Marvel fan, um. is working on his next movie. The man does not stop. He doesn't slow down, uh, even as he is kind of, like, in post-production on his um, Blouse of the Killer Moon um Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> Every time. Every time. <laughs> um, it's some combination of words. The Killers of the Flower Moon movie that he is worth, uh, finishing up and I think comes out on Apple next year. Um, he's announced that his next uh, project is going to be a movie about the Grateful Dead starring Jonah Hill as Jerry Garcia, which is very good casting. Um, if anyone has uh, never seen a picture of Jerry Garcia and is only really familiar with him because of the ice cream, um, <laughs> he he does bear quite a, a close resemblance to Joan Hill, and you know they could certainly accentuate it with, you know, uh, a beard and a wig. So I'm I'm excited for this mo- mostly because you know I'm I'm always excited for a new Scorsese movie. I think he's 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 just increasingly like one of the few American directors who's able to make kind of like big personal movies on sort of the, the sort of scale that is usually reserved for blockbusters. So I'm excited about this, but mainly because. The Grateful Dead are a band I have tried to not necessarily get into, but just to kind of like investigate um, multiple times over the years because they um, they have such a passionate following um, and anything that gets that sort of passion out of people, I want to be interested in. I want to mm. at least kind of like understand it. Like I've always listened to their music and thought, oh, this seems all right seems fine (laughs) it's not i wouldn't travel around the country to go see these this band live so i'm interested in seeing a take on the band from scorsese who obviously is someone who knows how to use music and understands the power of music better than like most other filmmakers currently working if only to kind of watch it and think okay i kind of get this now or at least to be given like a really good shot at having that moment
1: it's in the same kind of bracket as House of Gucci for me. I love, mm-hmm. I love seeing a really safe pair of hands used to an epic do something that is essentially melodrama or soap. Mm-hmm. Like, I need more lush entertainment at this time in my life. And I think Jonah Hill, you know, res- eerie resemblance aside, I think will do a great job because I don't think he's managed to get the parts that really show the range that I know is in him. Mm. Um, Also, body neutrality king, we stan. Incidentally enough, uh, anyone who wants any SRS host trivia, Cherry Garcia is my favourite Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavour. But it seems to be much harder to get in the UK these days. So if anyone can hook me up, <laughs> but I, I stress the ice cream, not the weed strain of the same name. <laughs>
0: uh, mine's fish food for anyone. Oh. We're, so we're both jam banded. I the was going to
1: say, it's the it's music. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, to the extent that I think, as probably was the case for anyone, a lot of people in England, like I heard of the ice cream before I heard that there was a band. So I just found the, the, P of the, the pH of the start very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> in other news, uh, Britney Spears is free. The ah. um, the Free Britney uh, campaign worked, her conservatorship uh, under her father has ended after 13 years. And, you know, this has been a real core cool celeb for the last couple of years, really. But certainly, I think over the last year, um, I don't know if it was, you know, people being at home and able to follow these things more on on the Internet and kind of like to dig into all of the various discussions about her Instagram and, like, hidden messages and things like that, which, you know, I think you can just draw people in, people like a mystery, people like a cause. and But whatever it it, it was, you know, the renewed attention on it has led to Britney Spears now being uh, essentially in control of her life again for the first time since the the late 2000s. And, um, yeah, just nothing you can say about that, but this is fantastic news.
1: Incredible. It's just so disturbing to think that even if you are um, one of the most coveted women in the world that this can happen to you mm. that this is the state of the law that, that there are just so many loopholes that put people into positions like this and that Britney's case, thanks to the devotion and tireless efforts of her fans, has created an awareness of conservatorships globally Mm. Um, and yeah, just kind of in awe that we'll get to see her do what she wants now. Um, Mm. And yeah, they're kind of looking for signs in the Instagram posts I don't think there's that much of a conspiracy to it. I think it's just clear that that's someone who's not fantastically well. Mm, And the problem with this is that it was never a conspiracy. It was all in plain sight. You don't need to sort of go deeper into it. Like, it's actually all plainly there. (laughs) Um, And the sort of rush of documentaries that kind of came out, um, I think, is more... Was able to be released and spoken about. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's horrifying at a time when broadly women's rights and marginalized groups' rights are under attack at every angle. And then to see, gay icon and like I think Britney Spears was possibly the most famous woman in the world in like the early two thousands. Mm. I don't I don't think that's a um exaggerated claim for me to make and everything else that she's been put through psychologically you know the kind of child star to train wreck pipeline (laughs) um and i'm really excited for her that she'll be able to live her life and be with her kids and not sing a single note again if she doesn't want to (laughs)
0: Mm. yes absolutely and then finally, rounding out the news okay. segment, we have uh, a couple of uh, sad passings over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, most recently, Mick Rock, the kind of acclaimed uh, photographer of the nineteen seventies, who in particular is renowned yeah, for his, his kind of, of great, great photographs, photographs of, of um, uh, Dave Bowie and other iconic rock performers of, of that era, passed away at the age of seventy-two. Now, if you've never seen his his work, you know just Google Mick Rock photography, and, and you'll be treated to, to some absolutely, absolutely Incredible incredible shots that, you know, are not just beautifully composed, but I think uh, really capture the essence of so many of those performers. And, like, yeah, it is just uh, astonishing that one person could be responsible for so many kind of, like, breathtaking and iconic images of these wonderful and brilliant musicians.
1: Completely. You think, oh, Mick Rock, who's that? And then you look at his photos and you just think, oh, of course. (laughs) I've seen his work. Constantly so through the 70s and beyond um, that he was, by all accounts, an incredibly dynamic, open and positive character. And I think he managed mm-hmm. to create a space and encourage people to come out of their shells, even if what then came out was something quite vulnerable. There's a photo of Debbie Harry that I really love where she's kind of looking off slightly into the distance and it just looks like the coolest girl you've ever seen in a club as you're passing her to get to the bar, like just these little kind of moments that warrant crystallizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he I saw him in a documentary about someone else, but he managed to ask the kind of prominent question that the documentary went on to <laughs> explore so i'm like he, he clearly had the cut of uh, of people's jibs
0: and also um the we heard the news a couple of weeks ago that dean stockwell had passed away at the age of 85 dean stockwell uh probably like one of the the kind of like um uh, character actors of the better half of the last century um uh, someone who appeared in everything. He was a regular in a lot of David Lynch movies. I think most people probably think of him um from Blue Velvet, where he has a kind of like an extremely notable uh, small performance miming along to uh, Roy Orbison. Um But then also you have, you know, he would show up in Dune. Uh, I believe he has some quite incredible eyebrows in... Uh, oh, and that's Brad Dourif. But he's definitely in Dune. I think he may play an Asian character in Dune, which is, is not his fault <laughs> for getting cast in that role. Um, but... Oh, also, you know, uh, Quantum Leap, he was he was the co- essentially the co-star of Quantum Leap, Scott Bakula, for many, many years. He uh, w- acted, like, since the 40s. He was a child star in the 40s, um, including in, like, one of the later Finn Man movies. So he was really, like, interestingly, one of the last living links to the classic era of Hollywood as someone who, like, acted in the kind of, like, the tail end of the golden age of the studio system and who just kind of kept working, kept showing up in things, never gave less than 100% from any role he was cast in, um, just truly like one of the all-time greats of uh, American acting.
1: That's phenomenal, and I didn't realise until he sadly passed that he was a child actor, mm. because mm-hmm. I definitely was of the uh, generation of viewers who watched him thanks to Quantum Leap being repeated on BBC2. For a long stretch of my childhood and then seeing him pop up in David Lynch films and then other he just he, he managed to be I think what is crucial about every character actor is that they are simultaneously the most normal and the most unique person you've ever seen
0: mm, yeah.
1: and I'm so gonna miss seeing him in new stuff but what an absolute treasure trove he's left for us
0: absolutely so we'll move on to the main topic for this week, and it is uh, gimmicks versus premises. Uh, Emily, this was your idea, so why didn't you kind of tear us up?
1: Sure. So Script Notes, the excellent podcast about screenwriting and things that are interesting and relevant to screenwriters, run by John August and Craig Mazin, jobbing screenwriters, John August of uh, Go, Big mm-hmm. Fish, Um, and many other things, and Craig Mason, of course, with one of the most staggering CVs of a human being ever, um, The Hangover, Chernobyl, and Ted Cruz's college roommate. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Et tu, Craig? Um,
0: I don't think they got on, based on subsequent comments.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, Craig can write a screenplay, and he can definitely write a tweet. I'll, I'll leave it at that. One of my favourite episodes of that podcast, which has been running for years and years, and I think is essential listening um, for anyone who's even vaguely interested in film, I think genuinely their best episode, technically speaking, um, is mystery versus confusion. And I Mm. think it neatly outlines the difference and how easy it is to conflate the two so that when screenwriters and filmmakers think they're being mysterious they're actually being confusing and it's like no if you want to go for mystery you need something very different like because confusion is the risk if you are attempting mystery mystery is something different it holds your attention we've established a question a tone character Whereas confusion is I just don't know what's going on and being frustrated rather than I have no idea what's going on and this is so unpredictable and I'm really along for the ride. And I've been thinking this a lot about gimmick versus premise in similar sort of ways, because the amount of particularly sort of art house alternative indie films where you hear the log line and my immediate thought is, well, is this a gimmick or is it a premise? And my definition, understanding of gimmick and premise is a gimmick is a device that doesn't have a substantial, sustainable stamina, another word beginning with S, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas a premise is something that is essential to the machinations. Of a text and manages to kind of encapsulate but not reduce mm-hmm. the whole experience. and I think my prime example of this is Swiss Army Man right yeah it sounded like a gimmick to me and then when I actually watched it, I thought, oh no, this is the premise. this is the star you know. It actually develops and it is a portal into something so much more moving. And I think Swiss Army Man as well is probably a film that I was not the key demographic for. Mm -hmm. I think that was partly in terms of the marketing and the storytelling. It was by design to make sure that the people who needed to see that film the most did, because that Mm -hmm. was the hook, you know. Because everyone needs to be hooked into something, but that hook can be a gimmick. So something quite shallow, often not particularly well thought through, done for a sheen and often quite um, trendy. Whereas a premise Mm. has something that gives a foundation for everything else to be built upon. And I think it happens more and more. And I like being surprised. Like for example, Tatan I think has recently come out in the UK and I mean that just sounds so gimmicky (laughs) but I have all faith that it's actually going to be a premise and I'm very excited about finally getting around to seeing it same with Annette which is finally coming out in the UK at the time of recording in in a week so I will actually be able to get it in my eyes um having waited for so long and that's also like It feels like a Mad Libs or like a... (laughs) It sounds like a Vice headline, like Sparks Brothers, Musical, Leos Carax. It's just like, oh, God, it's all coming at me. And I'm trying to think of an example where it's like maybe a premise that turned out to be a gimmick. I can't think of one just now. So, Ed, do you have some examples for me? How do you feel about the difference?
0: Well, when you first mentioned the idea of doing kind of like gimmick versus premise i the the thing that came to my mind for gimmicks were kind of there's something very carnival barkery about them about the the notion of a gimmick because you know like the early days of cinema it's all very much kind of like people who ran theaters just kind of like the film itself is kind of a gimmick you know it's like oh my god you know you see these uh, images on screen and uh, so like when i think of gimmicks i feel like that my mind immediately goes to like william castle sort of stuff from the 50s where you know they try and think of stuff that's external to the movie so the most famous of which being um the tingler which is a movie a horror movie about um something that kills people by kind of like Hitting their spine and the way that movie was exhibited, at least for a while, I don't imagine this was something that you could keep up for too long because it'd be really um, expensive. Was that they kind of like fitted out the seats so they would vibrate as people were watching it at certain points in the movie to kind of put them into it? And so that's kind of what my that was my first thought for gimmicks was you know actual physical things like you know 3D glasses. Um, the movie 13 Ghosts, the original from the 60s, which also was a William Castle joint. Um, had this thing which i'm not i i meant to look up how this was exactly meant to work i just kind of like read up about it but apparently you could hold up a piece of cellophane in front of your eyes to make the ghosts appear and disappear on screen so you could kind of have your own unique experience of the movie about when the ghosts appeared which i i think is kind of fascinating but also um when i think of gimmicks i guess i think of things that add to the movie but um in kind of like a superficial way but then when you take them away like the kind of the point of the movie disappears because The Tingler is like a fine cheesy uh, 50s horror movie but without the fact that your chair is visibly shaking as you're watching it it kind of feels like something is lost like something is lost from the experience similarly something like John Waters' polyester which yeah. made use of smell vision um, <laughs> where you essentially had a scratch card and the, on the screen it would scratch up and tell you when to scratch and then you would get various odors, um, some of which I imagine were very unpleasant. And that obviously, I think when they released it on Blu-ray or DVD at some point, you could also get the cards again so you could recreate it. But like if you're watching polyester on television or whatever, then obviously that element of it is, disappears and you know there's still some value to the film apart from that but in terms of the overarching vision of what waters was doing with that movie obviously like a huge component of it is gone if you can't you know be assaulted with whatever smells you're meant to be (laughs) experiencing during that scene in the movie but I, i think also something can be a gimmick in one movie and kind of the premise in another so Example that I immediately thought of because it's kind of a bugbear of mine is the use of long takes or seemingly long takes when yeah. they try and make something in a movie seem like it's done in a single shot. Where in some movies, like there's a German movie from a couple of years ago called Victoria, oh, yeah, which I fa- don't want to see famously it. is all done in a single shot yeah. or two long shots edited together, you know, seamlessly, however they did it, and that doesn't feel like too much of a gimmick to me because that story is like oh it's you know a real-time story about this one woman's experience on one night in berlin and it's about to kind of like telling this story in a way that it feels very kind of like intimate and intense and it makes sense that you're telling it all in a single take but some of the recent examples you've seen like the movie atomic blonde with charlie Theron has like a sequence where it's meant to be like oh my god there's this fight in a in a stairwell and it's all done in like one long take and it wasn't it's all edited together and that doesn't feel that feels more like something that you do so that people will talk about the movie rather than something that is like artistically warranted by the movie itself.
1: Yeah. And I think the kind of, uh, possibly slightly unfair, but best test style test for this is would a 14 year old boy go sick? (laughs) That's kind of your, um, litmus test. Yeah. gimmick versus premise and you know what sometimes when it's someone like John Waters you know there's a fluffiness and a fun to it which I think there's something just really camp about it right like it doesn't have to be fantastically deep but I think maybe the issue with the gimmick is that it thinks it's a premise
0: mm, yeah I feel like that's, that's enough to hang the whole movie on yeah
1: exactly so nothing else kind of follows through Um, And I think you see this where premise-i, premises in franchises. So Mm -hmm. you think about, for example, the original Saw film was like a half-decent premise. And because, you know, there was something about its kind of um, low-budget, one-star, you know, name in it, that it it understood that it's like, well, it's it's essentially a couple of people in a room and the writing needs to be really stellar, you know, Mm. to hold people's attention. And then with every iteration (laughs) of a Saw film, it just became watered down and got bigger and further away from the premise to the point where it reduced it to a gimmick of like, this is really gory and fucked up not Mm. oh you know the whole point for me of the premise is what would you do to yourself or this other person in order to escape which is which is nasty but has a bit more resonance to it and I think the irony is is that at the beginning they were just trying to make they were like oh okay interesting idea let's do it because it won't take us a lot to be able to do it compared to other concepts and then the more and more people got into it like oh yeah it's like such amazing horror and it's like it's not it's just gore mm-hmm. um, there's no sort of psychological thrill and then it's where you become sort of like really loaded with backstory and i think the general kind of backstory gimmick is really annoying me in like any franchise out there because it's not just superheroes it's disney it's like you can hear the barrel being <laughs> shaken and scraped because you know there's nothing wrong necessarily with any of the people making these films but why does it have to be a Cruella backstory why does it have to be you know I just I I don't really get it like the kind of hammering Mm. home of
0: yes why does Beauty and the Beast need an exclusively gay moment
1: yeah yeah or
0: should I say exclusively gay moment (laughs) That's kind of how I, whenever I see a term like that, that's how I think of. Like that will be the thing that you'll hear in the uh, <laughs> in the radio adverts
1: for it. <laughs> I think I might submit that to animated text, which is possibly my favourite Twitter account at the moment, because <laughs> um, I think I, I will need that as a reaction gift for quite my, a few things.
0: <laughs> my my favourite is the uh, Ace Attorney bot that turns Twitter threads into scenes from the Phoenix Wright Ace Ace
1: Attorney games. Oh man.
0: they're they're quite spectacular
1: see why would you create bots that destroy democracy when you could have fun guys (laughs) that's my PSA for you right there yeah because I think it's just there's something quite shallow about it like not to kind of not to sound too wanky pretentious but you know cinema and TV you know the screen arts I think we go to for so many reasons not just escapism mm-hmm. and for something to be a gimmick that sort of like overrides your cognitive functioning it's clickbait essentially right it's the same thing as clickbait like it managed like the whole point is the hook the whole point mm. is to hook you and then it will just be wrenched back out like a fish and then you're chucked back into the ocean and your gills are bleeding um there's nothing in there's nothing in it for you your curiosity is being harvested and not rewarded in any sense it's just very hollow Um, Mm. and I think the problem is is that you can see this a lot with auteurs where I think Wes Anderson is always the one that springs to mind because there can be almost too much of an aesthetic that then warps into a gimmick Hmm. but it's still something that's like individually recognisable. Like Wes Anderson's films don't look like anyone else's unless someone is doing it and you just go, well, you're copying Wes Anderson, (laughs) you know? Um, so I think there's a danger of kind of anyone running into a stereotype or like type in general, um, But then it's, what's the difference between your calling card and just being stale? You know, I think it's, and looking at people's careers and their work, that's what you're oscillating between, I think. And I do think Mm. there's something that's more authentic to a premise, that it's a cadence that you feel, like there's not actually a tick list to be like, ah, yes,
0: Yeah, I think uh, the, your example of Saw also reminds me of movies that I only watched for the first time uh, in October, the, the Final Destination movies. Oh, yeah! Where the first one, I think, definitely has the, pr- uh, the premise, which is these people survive a plane crash that was meant to kill them, and then death is hunting them down. And then, you know, those deaths are, in some cases, quite elaborate. In some cases, someone just walks in front of a bus. But it doesn't feel like super gimmicky because the movie is essentially going this is the story this is how it's going to happen and you know these these characters are trying to avoid this but as soon as you move beyond the first movie then it becomes a gimmick because people go to those movies and they think well how how elaborate are the deaths going to be this time what's going to be the big inciting death that kicks off the movie you know in the second movie it's the uh, the the crash on the highway which is amazing and terrified me very much as a child mm. um, um, to the extent that I don't like driving behind trucks on roads anymore I'm a very safe driver because of that movie I think or oh, the third one's a roller coaster and the fourth one it's a racetrack you know and each time although I think the third one's pretty good that each time it still kind of like feels like as fun as it is um, that it kind of wears thin a little bit that you're kind of each time you're watching it you're thinking okay now you're just trying to see you know what are going to be like the really interesting kills and the the stuff about the first movie which is a little more idiosyncratic and fun and you know has a uh, i think a lot more going for it just as a movie kind of wears away and it the gimmick just becomes you know how are these photogenic teenagers going to get chopped up into pieces this time and it becomes a little tired
1: yeah and it's sort of superficial and surface level as well Whereas, weirdly, I think often premises from music videos are better than a lot of films. Mm. <laughs> um, which has always baffled me, because I feel like music videos are either bringing people in or preaching to the converted. Right. When you look at people like Adele or Taylor Swift, recently for example like all too well is the short film you know it's not a video (laughs) and beyonce's lemonade you know visual album which we've talked about before i think that's an incredible example of kind of genuinely like encapsulating the premise of a visual album Mm -hmm. because it doesn't have a narrative but it's so thematically rich and is a collection of music videos that move together seamlessly. Um, Like, it's not a gimmick of like, it's a music video stuck together. And again, the power of the visual is where Beyonce's message is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think music videos are often calling cards for directors. Um yeah. I mean, the number of directors working today in film who, you know, made names for themselves through music videos, because really it's a very hard brief, any music video. <laughs> you have to have an excellent sense of who the person or group or like what their whole deal is and make it, you know, possibly same, same, but different. The fact that music videos managed to be like the source of controversy before the internet really happened, you know? Mm,
0: yeah, I remember when the like the Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson Scream video like debuted, like just the discussion about the sheer cost of it and everything, like it was just a, a matter for discussion, even though it was, you know, not by, by, you know, kind of in terms of being entertaining, where it wasn't that great a song or that great a video, but it was like a thing that people needed to have an opinion on. Yeah. Did you have any examples of uh, movies where like the premise and the gimmick are perfectly married together? So for for an example of what I mean by that, the movie that I first thought of as like a case where you can say, okay, it is kind of a gimmick, but it's so perfectly fits the premise that they, they, you know, you can't really separate them would be the Blair Witch Project.
1: Oh yeah. Great example. It's interesting how a lot of our examples just overall are horror, right? Mm. Um, Yeah.
0: It's a very experimental genre and also one that's driven a lot by um pure market forces so if someone comes up with something new in horror then like suddenly everyone has to get on board
1: absolutely it's an interesting kind of genre to gather what's going on in all of the others and what's going to kind of like lead through mm. i think just every mumblecore film <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think generally films from very defined movements. Mm. Um. So I finally watched Festen. Oh, way.
0: great! Great movie. Yeah. Very, very, very um awkward and intense. Oh my great god! Movie. Like
1: only in Denmark can this be a dark comedy. And mm. uh, yeah, die Um, yes, I'm still no further into my danish fluency (laughs) every day that owl pecks at me to practice and i do because i do the owl's bidding but the thing about it was that like i think dogma in general is really interesting because that's constantly sort of the enfant terrible thing of like oh is it hard and fast rules is it not do we care about this manifesto you have to guess are we sticking our noses up at the film world. It was the 90s, guys. It was a different time. But I really enjoyed it, I think, because it manages to get across the very real horror of the situation. And I don't want to talk too much about it for anyone who hasn't seen it. But the thing that strikes me as well, now having seen more Dogma films, is that Festin is Thomas Vinterberg, and I'd only ever really seen Miles von Trier's Dogma submissions before, and um, how different they are just in Mm. terms of how they look, because you'd think, oh, with these kinds of rules in place, you'd expect to see things that look very similar. And they don't. Like, there's this amazing sort of fisheye lens that's used periodically in Feston, which, again, is that breaking the rules? I don't know, crazy Danes. But, like, I think with film movements as well, you can't just rest on the manifesto. Mm. It has to be a film in and of its own right. It can't just be a slim volume in a really big library. But Mumblecore, I think, in particular, because there's something about the kind of youthful Americanism of it, like the uh like the sort of late Gen X, early millennialness mm. um of Mumblecore that came out of the original kind of fronds of the indie movement, which was mainly like schlobby guys with beards apologies to Richard Linklater and Kevin Smith I love you both but like that's that's what it was and I think his mumble core lent itself to navel gazing because they didn't have the budget to look width of themselves
0: Mm, Um, yeah like you had an apartment that your friend owned that you could film in for a day (laughs) yeah it's
1: like oh what's this a relationship drama oh we can just afford two actors and one of them's the director so I think but I think mumblecore is also like a really great phase because I think it's so exciting when you find someone like younger sort of film fans who have just discovered mumblecore and it's like ah oh, youngin I remember the days go forth. but yeah I think mumblecore is the apex of gimmick and premise because it's <clears throat> yeah I can't it I can't extricate one from the other mm.
0: and I think that's also an interesting one in that it's kind of. I mean, some of them are probably, like, gimmicky in the sense that you're seeing, like, a mumblecore horror. Like, mumblecore people being like, oh, you know, can we apply this to different genres? But a large part, and I think this is something that anyone who was involved in mumblecore kind of takes um, umbrage at, is the, the fact that that term was kind of applied retroactively after a few films had been made. And they essentially just said, yeah, we're just kind of kind of going to rebrand all these low-budget indie movies as... A movement when like there maybe wasn't that sort of cohesion at least initially like it was a bunch of different people all kind of thinking hey you know digital cameras can be bought for like less than a grand now Mm. let's go out and make movies ourselves and so there, like it kind of became for some of those movies kind of became a gimmick retroactively like the early duplass brothers movies like people just slapping mumblecore and stuff because they were like yeah, like, they're they're part of that movement, sure. Right, yeah, why not? Let's say that they are. And then that becomes kind of the marketing uh, thing. That I guess a lot of gimmick stuff is just marketing in general. It's like, how do you make a movie sellable? And for those sort of movies, it's like, well, we have kind of a talky, lo-fi movie that's not really about much. Let's say it's mumblecore, because that's a term that people are familiar with.
1: Absolutely.
0: Another uh, example I think I had of a movie where like the gimmick i think it's similarly to what you were saying about um swiss army man where like the gimmick is kind of something that makes you go okay so that's a movie now and then you watch it and it's actually like got a lot more going for it was ken loach's uh looking for eric which yes
1: g- oh yeah, yeah 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 yeah
0: somewhat maybe forgotten at this point you know came out in what 2008 or something a drama comedy drama about a man who is coached through life by eric cantona and you know, like an imaginary version of current <laughs> eric cantona playing himself actual eric which,
1: cantona of just oh yeah
0: which is a lovely movie about someone kind of like struggling with um sort of like you know mental health issues with being poor in england and it's a movie where like the basic you know you, you say the log line someone's like hey a guy who lives in Manchester is being coached by a fiction, by this kind of like uh, hallucination of Eric Cantona, the legendary French footballer. For people who are unfamiliar with Eric Cantona, um, then that just sounds like kind of a totally silly one-note premise. But then the movie itself is like I think much kind of like warmer and richer, and there like it's it's the um, example I think of taking a gimmick so seriously. That it it becomes kind of like a worthwhile premise in and of itself. Mm. Also, I think an interesting thing to consider is gimmick things that started out of gimmicks and then just became commonplace. I think we've talked about some of them here, or mentioned some of them here, like stuff like found footage, which you know, with the Blair Witch Project and and some predecessors like um The Last Broadcast or Cannibal Holocaust. You know, people were doing Ghost Watch to an extent, I, I guess. guess. Um. Um, there were people experimenting with the idea of creating something that it seems like found media or pre-existing form media and playing with it in and, and kind of giving it a verisimilitude that would trick people into thinking it was real. Um, But then once that becomes successful and people keep copying it, at a certain point just found footage becomes like uh, an aesthetic choice that people use and it stops feeling novel. And it stops feeling like a gimmick instead. Yeah. You kind of have to interrogate it as an actual artistic choice, which I think is kind of a benefit, even as as someone who, like, isn't terribly keen on on found horror, found footage in general. But some other examples I had uh, jotted down here were um, the notion of a split screen, which, mm. um, when people started really using that in, like, the 50s and 60s, I think it seems like just like a totally gimmick thing of showing two images on the same screen, but, you know, someone like Stanley Donan using it in indiscreet to make it seem like uh, the two leads are in bed together, which was uh for, for at the time, um, in American movies, or and then obviously like you know years later, like Brian De Palma coming along and really kind of making, uh, it his own and really making you feel like, oh, this is like, a really vital filmmaking tool. It's not just kind of like a a super gimmicky thing that you associate with cheesy movies from the sixties. 3D I think kind of always goes through cycles where it starts out being. A total gimmick thing that's just there to juice um film prices but then you start to see people using it a bit more and then one i hadn't really thought of but came up in my um in my reading on it which i think is maybe one of the most successful gimmicks of all time and that it completely changed how people go and watch movies was psycho not allowing people in after the first five minutes where you know when that movie was released it was specifically said that there would be no late admissions so uh, people wouldn't be spoiled, and you wouldn't get people coming in halfway through oh and and seeing the ending or whatever like that was the f- the movie that really started the trend of people going to see a movie when it started as opposed to just kind of like wandering in and then you know you watch the end of it, then you watch the rest of it and then you leave
1: yeah it's interesting to think of how many like i think particularly with sort of new technology mm. how I think all new technology starts out as a gimmick that no one really believes is going to work. And then we suddenly all have calculators in our pockets. Fuck you, secondary math teachers. But it's weird because I think some are more inherently gimmicky than others, like Google Glass, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting to see what kind of becomes quite commonplace, but like a bit of an edge think it's it's kind of like first class on trains right it makes Uh, uh. sense for some journeys but it's not that amazing for what you're being asked to pay right and i find that with all of the kind of d elements (laughs) the extra dimensions that are added into uh films i'm just happy with my sort of two arguably if if you um get stuck with me for too long in the corner of a party i will argue why all film is 3D, and uh, the, yeah, I'll spare you that. But then, how stuff just doesn't really seem to leave. Because I think, like, mm. I remember when the IMAX first opened in the UK, there was only one, and it was in London. Um, and what a huge anticipation I had. And then, what a letdown it was because it was this thing of, like, cool. So, you have the technology and you have the little show, but then you don't actually have full length films to <laughs> to show and to catch up and now it's like oh you can see this film quote unquote normally or IMAX and you're like well and you know i saw mad max fury road in IMAX for the first time but IMAX didn't make the film better like i i knew that fury road was an incredible film you know regardless of the glasses i was wearing on top of my other glasses <laughs>
0: mm-hmm that we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot verse of shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week
1: well as i'm stepping out cautiously and carefully and going to live music again i have been really enjoying seeing bands that i was not aware of before and seeing them live for the first time as well mm. um so billy Nomates is my musical and performance obsession um of du jour uh it's really hard to describe the experience but I think that's what really sells it um I haven't heard anything quite like Billy No Mates but I will mention synth loops 80s and uh witty lyrics like genuinely very lyrics. So that's Billy no mates.
0: Cool. I am going to recommend for the second week in a row a uh, Timothy Chalamet vehicle. Uh, I'm going to recommend Dune the uh, Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel, which I went to see. I did a, a double bill of French Dispatch and Dune the other week. And <laughs> uh, I... Really like doing uh the novel i think it's um a really great vision and also like very hard to kind of like get through the first hundred pages because it just throws so many terminology at you, and just is generally um very very dense in a way that can be off-putting i think the movie uh manages to avoid a lot of that stuff i think it does a good job of kind of like passing out what is important for people to know and what and and um divulging it in ways that feel, you know, kind of don't feel like overly exposition heavy. Uh, I think it looks fantastic. It's very stark for a big blockbuster, which is not something that I think we've become used to. We've become used to the idea of like visual blockbusters all being very busy. Mm-hmm. And, and Dune is like lots of negative space, lots of very archly composed images, which I think um, really stand out. I think the performances are all really good i'm particularly i particularly enjoyed um jason momoa as duncan idaho who is one of the more fun characters in the book uh he kind of does the chris pratt charismatic dickhead thing better than chris pratt ever has i think he's he's uh, a lot of fun in that and um just yeah i just think it does the movie as well uh it does the, the story as was well um as could be imagined on that scale Obviously, it's only half the first book. You know, the second half is going to come out in two years. So it doesn't have a particularly satisfying finale, I would say, but it has a a finale that feels appropriate for the story they're telling. And I'm really excited to see what they do with part two now that it's confirmed. Because I think this is, you know, just kind of like really big budget sci-fi that's kind of quiet and thoughtful and uh, intriguing in a way that um, it feels at odds with a lot of the kind of blockbusters that you tend to get from hollywood and I would, I would also recommend seeing it in a theater if you get the chance just because it's kind of like a long and slow and moody and meditative movie and those for my money are best seen in a movie theater where it's harder for you to get distracted it's very much the sort of movie that that gets harmed by watching it at home and not being it and, and kind of you know getting uh, interrupted by things in in the real world happening so yes so that is dune which i think is still in theaters and if you can see it in a theater you should you should take a chance because i think it's really good if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher Play, spotify all the usual places raises reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can always find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we're back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me
1: and it's goodbye from me